Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. At the Battle of Incheon, the U.S. Marines and infantry successfully cut across the Korean Peninsula cutting off the lines of supply which were keeping North Korean forces supplied while they held the UN and South Korean forces in the Pusan perimeter. With no other option, the North Korean army fell back and the fighting switched to a UN push to the 38th parallel. The RAAF had been involved in the Korean War since the opening days, with 77 Squadron launching some of the first combat missions. But this stage of the war was when Australian troops from 3 RAR first became involved in the fighting. For the Air Force enthusiasts out there, I promise I will do an episode on 77 Squadron. But for now, let's focus on three RAR's first couple of major actions in Korea, namely the Apple Orchard and Pak Chon. Welcome to the Australian Military History Podcast, a podcast dedicated to Australian servicemen and women covering events, units and personalities from the Boer War through to the modern day. G'day everyone, welcome back. So I know for many people the events leading up to the Korean War are fairly unknown. There's a reason it's known as the Forgotten War. So before I charge headlong into this episode, I thought I'd just give a comparatively brief overview of how things kicked off and the main bits and pieces that occurred prior to the Australians getting involved. So in World War II, Japan had occupied the Korean Peninsula and drawn its population, willingly or unwillingly, into the service of the Japanese military. Many would act as guards in prisoner of war camps and attain a reputation for brutality equal to that of the Japanese. When the war ended, having fought alongside the defeated Japanese, the Korean Peninsula became part of the occupied territory. Unlike Japan, however, Korea found itself as a place where communism and Western democracy met in Asia. The Russians wanted their cut, while the Americans also wanted theirs. But in the big scheme of things, from both a Russian and American point of view, the petition of Korea wasn't overly important. Europe was where the big prizes were. As such, not too much thought was given to where the dividing line should be. There was no natural feature such as a river or mountain range they could use and no real cultural line either. Not that they looked too hard. In the end, exhausted American Army officers Dean Rusk and Charles Bonesteel point to the 38th parallel and basically say, that'll do. They took this to the Potsdam Conference where the Russians basically said, yeah righto, or yeah rightski, I don't know. And then they got down to what they were really there for, the juicy spoils of the demarcation of Germany. With their fates decided by men who knew nothing of their country, Korea got on with the partition. On 15th of August 1948, the Republic of Korea, South Korea, was established with its capital in Seoul. A month later, the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, North Korea, was established with its capital in Pyongyang. Seoul was only 35 miles south of the 38th parallel, which in hindsight doesn't seem to be a great idea. Makes it kind of vulnerable if the North should decide to attack. But surely that won't happen, will it? Of course it will. But maybe that wasn't so obvious back in 1948. So anyway, the next couple of years saw both sides sorting out their government structure and all the other bits and pieces required to run a country. 
but all the while each side was looking at the other, wondering what they're up to, and probably, I have nothing to back this up from the South's perspective, both wanting a reunited Korea created in their own image. But by January 1950, Kim Il-sung reckons he's in a position to liberate the South. He sends a flurry of telegrams to Beijing and Moscow and secures the support of the communist heavyweights Joseph Stalin and Mao Zedong. Confident of their support, Kim goes down to brass tacks and starts planning. Then on 25th of June 1950, the opening bell sounds and North Korea unleashes a massive artillery bombardment of the South and shortly thereafter, more than 100,000 North Korean troops pour across the border into South Korea. The South Koreans are forced back, but they're far from routed and retire in good order to take up further defensive positions. From the outside world's perspective, they don't really know what's happened, or more importantly, who instigated it. Two Australians would soon sort that out. Squadron leader Ronald Rankin and Major Stuart Peach were on assignment with the United Nations patrolling the 38th parallel. They witnessed North Korea's opening moves and their report to the United Nations confirmed that as North Korea was the aggressor, then UN forces could be deployed in support of the Democratic South. UN Resolution 83 was adopted, authorising military involvement. On the day the resolution was passed, the South Korean capital, Seoul, was captured for the first time. Speaking of Seoul, I wanted to move there for work once. I thought it would be a good career move. Oh, come on, that was a good one. Okay. By September 1950, thousands of UN troops, mostly American occupation troops from Japan, arrived in South Korea, but the situation was somewhat dire. The North had pushed the South Korean troops back to a small perimeter around the southeastern port city of Busan. But things aren't great for the North either. They've paid dearly for their success. Nearly half of the troops who crossed the 38th parallel back in June had been lost. If they didn't land a knockout blow soon, they could be the ones in trouble. That possibility remained hypothetical though. Then on 15th September, General MacArthur launched an audacious amphibious landing at Incheon, 150 miles behind the front line. The plan was to land troops on the western side of the peninsula, roughly at a point where the peninsula is at its narrowest. Having secured the landing, troops would push towards the east, create a line across the peninsula and cut off the North Korean forces in the south. It was a huge risk. If it failed, then all of MacArthur's achievements in the Pacific War against Japan would be stained by an unqualified disaster. But as it turned out, it worked and MacArthur's legend and his ego grew. His ego would eventually get him sacked. Ten days after the landing at Incheon, Seoul is liberated. So as you can imagine, with the bulk of the North Korean forces cut off in the south, there's not much opposing a UN advance northwards. In October 1950, UN forces advanced into North Korea and approached the Yalu River. So that's where we'll turn our focus towards 3RAR. When the opening bell rang, 3RAR was stationed in Japan as part of the occupation force. They were preparing to return to Australia, having completed their mission in Japan. When the invasion occurred, the government committed 3RAR to the defence of Korea, but it wasn't really prepared for war. They had been trained and equipped as an occupation force. Yes, they had weapons and ammunition, but standing guard at checkpoints and basically acting as armed police is no preparation for the two-way firing range. And so while the initial fighting was taking place, they threw themselves into training and getting themselves organised. Then, with the US troops pressed hard in the Pusan perimeter, there was no time left. Three RAR arrived in Pusan on the 28th of September 1950 under the command of Lieutenant Colonel Charles Green where it became part of the British 27th Infantry Brigade. Thankfully, 
the brigade was soon renamed the 27th Commonwealth Brigade, so we weren't mistaken for POMs for too long. Mind you, it was a pretty impressive brigade to belong to, with a couple of battalions from famous British regiments, namely the Argyll and Sutherland Highland Regiment and the 1st Middlesex Regiment. Eventually, the Princess Patricia Canadian Light Infantry and the 16th Field Regiment of New Zealand Artillery would join in. But at this point, it's the Argyles, Middlesex and 3 RAR. Full credit to the Yanks though. By the time the 27th Commonwealth arrived in Pusan, the North Koreans were already in retreat. The Americans and South Korean troops had withstood the siege pretty much on their own. The 27th Commonwealth was attached to the US 1st Cavalry Regiment and soon became the vanguard of the advance, with the Argyles capturing Sariwon on 17th October, killing 215 North Korean troops for the loss of one man killed and three wounded. An interesting example of the confusion of this phase of the war occurred here. Many North Koreans were unaware that Sariwon had been captured, and so, massing for an assault to recapture Pyongyang, they assembled at Sariwon. Major Ian Ferguson, second in command of 3 RAR, was at a position waiting for some ration trucks to arrive. I'll let him tell the story. I was in an apple orchard with Woe 2 Ryan and six guides awaiting the arrival of the ration vehicles when coming up the road from the rear we heard the tramp of marching feet. When the column was abreast of me I flashed on the jeep lights to see who it was. The officer at the head of the column called out Rusky just as one of my guides fired off his Owen gun. The column dispersed taking up firing positions. I asked the Lieutenant Colonel for the loan of some troops and although he doubted my statement he did in fact give me Major G.M. Thurwell, MC, and his company to clear them out. Major Thurwell, an interpreter, and I mounted the tank and drove down the road. Through an interpreter we told the North Koreans that they were surrounded and gave them two minutes to give themselves up. It was the longest two minutes of my life. A deathly hush fell over the area and you could hear your own heartbeats. Finally, the North Koreans surrendered and the bag for the night was 1,982 prisoners plus some anti-tank guns and a host of LMGs, MMGs and mortars. End quote. The lesson here, ladies and gentlemen, is never underestimate the power of bullshit delivered with an air of confidence. After Sarawan, the brigade then passed to the command of the US 24th Infantry Division on the 23rd of October under the command of Major General John H. Church. The first order of business now was to seize Shongju. It was during this advance that 3 RAR fought its first major action of the war, the Battle of Yongju, also known as the Battle of the Apple Orchard. On 20th of October, the US 187th Airborne Regiment Combat Team, 187 RCT, parachuted into Sakchon and Sunchon to the north of Pyongyang, with the intention of cutting off retreating North Korean forces and rescuing American POWs who were being moved out of Pyongyang. Moving out from Sakchon on the 21st of October, Two teams from the 187th Airborne Infantry Regiment worked at clearing the Sakchon Yongju Road and to meet up with the 27th Commonwealth Brigade coming the other way. The North Korean 239th Regiment found itself in a tricky spot. Yanks to the left of me, Poms to the right, stuck in the middle with Wu. I assume there's a Wu in there somewhere. Anyway, left with little option, the North Koreans staged a breakout, punching towards the Americans. They may have been the retreating army, but the North Korean troops could still pack a punch. Throughout the night, they threw themselves at the Americans time and time again. They suffered heavily as a result, but they also hurt the Americans as well, forcing them to pull back to better defensive positions and expending a lot of ammunition. By morning, both sides were pretty much knackered, but the North Koreans had the greater motivation to continue. They'd all be killed or captured if they didn't. And so, realising they were facing a force driven by desperation, 
the Americans requested armoured help from the 27th Commonwealth Brigade, which had a platoon of US Sherman tanks in company. During the night of the 21st-22nd, Brigadier Code switched his forces around and now 3RAR was to take the lead the following day. Brigade headquarters informed Lieutenant Colonel Green that the Americans were about a mile north of 3RAR's position and were taking heavy fire from an apple orchard. C Company, under Captain A.P. Dennis, led the battalion into the attack, some riding the Shermans while others rode in other transport vehicles. At around 9am, C Company came under small arms and mortar fire from the orchard, so they hopped off their transports. The company had come into contact with the North Korean rear guard as they were preparing for another attack on the Americans. The wily Koreans had allowed C Company and the battalion's tactical headquarters to pass them by before opening up. At this stage, no one was 100% sure exactly where the Americans were, so some care needed to be taken to avoid shooting at them while engaging the North Koreans. Green came forward to Dennis's position and heeding Brigadier's Code's order to urgently link up with the paratroopers, he ordered a rapid attack in order to seize the initiative and continue the pursuit. With close support from the Sherman tanks, C Company, less 9 platoon, which was protecting the flank, charged forward with bayonets fixed. Now way back in the dark ages when I was a young soldier, we were always taught that the only way to respond when being ambushed is to turn in the direction of the enemy and charge. There's nothing quite so unnerving as suddenly going from being the ambushers to being the ambushed. And that was more or less what happened at this moment. Thinking they had the Australians pinned down and apparently under control, the last thing they expected to see was 100 or so Australians jump up and charge at them with big pointy things on the end of their rifles. Quite understandably, given that they had been fighting hard for more than 24 hours, the nerve of many Koreans broke at the sight and they ran. Those who stayed to fight fell victim to the Australians and many North Korean positions were destroyed. About 70 were killed during this attack, with 8 or 9 more killed during the consolidation of the position. Four Australians were wounded. Many of those who fled fell victim to the Australian rifle fire and the US tanks. Dennis was awarded the Military Cross for his role in coordinating and leading the assault. Green was advised by headquarters that the Americans were about 1,500 yards to his north, too close for artillery or serious tank support. The battle would remain primarily an infantryman's battle. With C Company well ensconced in their new position, Green ordered A and B Companies onto the higher ground to C Company's right, intending to clear the ridge overlooking the highway. D Company was ordered to the left. While these moves were taking place, Battalion Headquarters came under attack in the Apple Orchard. The military police and signals fought back to back to hold off the attack, eventually killing 34 North Koreans while suffering three wounded themselves. This is a good example of why everyone in the army is a soldier first, and then anything else second. You never know when you could end up having to fight for your life, even if you're not in the pointy end. Green ordered D Company to clear the North Koreans' threatening headquarters and to send one platoon to establish contact with the Americans. Caught between D Company's attack and the exhausted but still fighting paratroopers, the North Koreans attempted to escape across the open paddy fields through a gap between the 27th Brigade and the Americans. Out in the open, they were easy targets for C Company. Many decided to seek refuge among a number of haystacks and rice stooks in front of the 9 platoon position, where they were shot at any time they exposed themselves. Others tried to flee to the east to the higher ground, and the majority of these troops lived to fight another day. D Company was then ordered to clear the remaining pockets of resistance in the paddy fields. Despite the battle being mostly over, many of the North Koreans refused to surrender, and so had to be cleared one by one. C Company was deployed into extended line and moved across the paddy fields, Brigadier Code offered a description of C Company's advance. 
I saw a marvellous sight, an Australian platoon lined up in a paddy field and walked through it as though they were driving snipe. The soldiers, when they saw a pile of straw, kicked it and out would bolt a North Korean. Up with a rifle and down with a North Korean and the Australians thoroughly enjoyed it. They did that the whole day and they were absolutely in their element. End quote. The Battle of the Apple Orchard pretty much destroyed the North Korean 239th Regiment. Losing 150 men killed, 239 wounded and 200 captured, their losses were devastating. For their part, three RAR suffered only seven wounded. Their next major battle would be at Pak Chon. But first, they had to get there. Pak Chon lay on the northern side of the Chong Chon River. Just south of Pak Chon, the river divides into two estuaries with an island of solid ground in the middle. The bridges over both estuaries had been blown by the retreating North Koreans. A reconnaissance party from the Argyles drew machine gun fire and a bit of artillery from the enemy on the opposite bank. An airstrike soon sorted out that problem and the Middlesex were able to cross the river without enemy interference. But the river was flowing quite well and the current swept the boats about a mile downstream. Rather than follow the Middlesex downriver, the Australians opted to cross via a ford further upstream and then hunkered down about three miles northwest of Anjou. The ford wasn't suitable for tanks and so they had to cross even further upstream. American engineers had a pontoon bridge across the river within 48 hours. But while they were waiting for the pontoon bridge to be built, B Company of 3 RAR continued the advance and by late afternoon were about a mile south of Pak Chon on the main road to Manchuria where it crosses the Tain Yong River. Again, the bridge was destroyed, but Lieutenant A.L. Morrison took two sections of four platoon across by climbing along the broken spans. Upon reaching the other side, a group of North Korean soldiers came towards them, hands well and truly held high. But as they came close to four platoon, other troops hidden in the high ground opened fire on the Koreans and Australians alike. Fortunately their fire wasn't particularly accurate and when reports were received that there were at least two enemy companies to their front, Morrison took his troops and prisoners back over the bridge. D Company under Major W.F. Brown, with support from the air, artillery and water fire, cleared the town of Pakchon by 6.30pm the following day. Coming back with 225 prisoners, he left a platoon to form a bridgehead and guard the American engineers building the bridge. Another platoon was to guard against whatever enemy there was on the other side of the river. The weather wasn't particularly favourable that evening and the air support wouldn't be available until the following day. The American tank commander also told Green that the crossing wasn't yet suitable for tanks. Green decided to take two companies across the river to hold the bridgehead overnight, by which time, with luck, the armour and the air support would be able to join them. A and B companies moved forward and took up positions. At about 4am, a T-34 tank, a couple of Russian-style jeeps, a motorcycle and half a dozen Korean infantry sauntered on down the road with the intention of reoccupying the crossing, unaware that the Australians were well dug in by this stage. A Company let them come forward before opening up, forcing the Koreans to abandon their vehicles and scatter. Among the dead was a senior North Korean commander. But before they could make much use of the map they found on the officer, another T-34 showed up. Private Jeff Butler gives a pretty good description. The tank, a Russian T-34, came lumbering around the bend in the road and to our frazzled nerves looked about the size of the taxation building and equally fearsome. Having a sense of humour, it stopped between the ridges we were holding and deployed the infantry it was carrying to investigate our area. At this stage, my mate Ray, who was sharing my foxhole, suddenly woke from a well-earned catnap and said, just had a funny dream. I dreamt there was a tank at the bottom of the hill. Parting our flimsy bit of camouflage, I replied, take a look at that, sport. This snapped him back to reality. From then on, the tank fired at random for the remainder of the night. 
We couldn't attack as we would have given our positions away to the supporting infantry. One of the boys attempted to engage it with a bazooka, but just as it was about to move off, the bazooka misfired and before he could reload, the tank was out of range. We spent the night huddled in shallow foxholes within yards of a T-34, listening to their fire orders, and that is no picnic. End quote. Well, that's the understatement of the century. Imagine being so close to an enemy tank you can actually hear them giving orders. Bugger that. Next morning, C and D companies crossed the river and pushed forward. The Argyles crossed a bit higher upstream on tanks and established a second beachhead, and by nightfall they had all linked up with the Australians and the crossing was secured. At dawn, the Middlesex pushed forward with supporting aircraft, destroying 10 T-34 tanks and three self-propelled guns. Everyone started to feel that the end was in sight. A quick push on the Chongzhou, only 40 miles from the Manchurian border, and it should all be over and everyone can go home. The Commonwealth Brigade spearheaded the push to Chongzhou, with the Argyles taking the lead without incident. Four miles from Chongzhou, the Australians passed through the Argyles to take the lead. A mosquito air spotter plane reported tanks in the area on a ridge overlooking the road, along with a large concentration of infantry. Eight airstrikes blasted the position with high explosive and napalm, while the Shermans travelling with three RAR added their way to fire. Colonel Green ordered D Company to attack with tank support. Despite the pending they had just received, the North Koreans were still able to put up a strong fight, taking out one of the Shermans with a well-placed armour-piercing shell right through the turret. It took D Company two hours to secure the ridge. The coming evenings saw D Company dug in on a paddy field to the left of the road, A Company in among the pine trees to the right of the road, B Company astride the road and C Company in reserve. From about 8pm to midnight, the Koreans launched a number of desperate attempts to dislodge the Australians. These attacks were supported by tanks and self-propelled guns. The first attack was launched against D Company. As the Communists charged forward, D Company held their fire until they were only 10 yards away, then opened up, decimating the attack. But some isolated pockets managed to get through and cut D Company off from the battalion headquarters. A Company was next to receive some attention. T-34 tanks again provided cover for the attacking force, which got so close that the Australians' supporting artillery was falling only 10 yards to their front. That must have called for some pretty accurate fire from the Artie. I know they're often referred to as drop shorts, but the number of times throughout our military history that the gunners have landed pinpoint fire close to their own infantry is amazing. So, a quick shout out to the drop shorts. With the attack halted, A Company launched a counter-attack. Private L.A. Simpson of 3 Platoon took out two T-34s with a bazooka, while Private Jack Stafford of D Company took one out with his Bren gun. How can a Bren gun take out a tank, you may ask? Good question. Private Stafford wormed his way forward to within 20 yards of the tank and poured a few rounds into the tank's auxiliary fuel tanks, situated on the outside of the hull. The fuel caught fire, which then ignited the ammunition, and the tank exploded. Well done, Private Stafford. So by midnight, the Koreans are pretty much fought out. The Australians held the ground and many tanks had been knocked out, not to mention all the troops they had lost. But they still managed to deliver probably the greatest blow to the Australians up to that point. After the night of tough fighting and vigilance, Colonel Green decided to take a kip in his tent. The Koreans managed to lob a few artillery rounds in the general vicinity of battalion headquarters, but none did any harm, except the last one. It hit a tree just outside Green's tent, sending splinters flying everywhere. There were at least 40 men in the immediate area and none received a scratch. Colonel Green, though, was hit by a large piece of shrapnel and was seriously wounded. He was loaded onto a jeep and rushed to the hospital at Anjou, but died soon after. 
Green was replaced as CO by Lieutenant Colonel Floyd Walsh, who Green had replaced as CO prior to 3RAR leaving Japan for the Pusan perimeter. It was felt at the time that Walsh lacked the required experience to lead men in combat. Events at Pakchon would soon prove the wisdom of that choice. So you'd be forgiven for thinking I just told you about the Battle of Pakchon, but you'd be wrong. This was just the precursor to get you in mind of the situation up to this point. The Commonwealth Brigade had advanced nearly to the Manchurian border. There was bugger all room for the North Korean Army to squeeze into. Surely it was all over. Brigadier Code asked the American Divisional Commander what his orders were now. A regimental combat team was to pass through his brigade. Code thought they were going forward to smother the last embers of the North Korean resistance. But the next day, he was ordered to withdraw his entire brigade and to dig in at Pak Chon. He had no idea what was going on. Why was he being ordered to fall back and prepare a defensive position when the bad guys were pretty much done? Well, you see, Manchuria was Chinese territory. General MacArthur wanted to push into Manchuria to snub out any chance of a North Korean resurgence. The Joint Chiefs back in Washington basically said, are you insane? That'll bring the Chinese into the war. MacArthur told them, nah, it's all good. The Chinese will behave themselves and leave us to it. The Joint Chiefs said, do not cross into Manchuria. MacArthur thought to himself, what would they know? We're going to Manchuria. But MacArthur was wrong. MacArthur was very wrong. Even before his decision to keep pushing forward, even before the Australians took Xiongzhou, the Chinese recognised the threat to their southern border and were preparing to get involved. There were a few signs that China was already involved in the fighting. A prisoner taken by 3RAR identified himself as Chinese. Other captured documents also confirmed the Chinese were on the move. MacArthur's inflated ego had come around to bite him on the arse and the Joint Chiefs finally had the justification to sack him, which they'd been looking for pretty much since MacArthur first pushed for the Inchod landings. Regardless of who was in overall command of the UN forces, the war had now entered a new and much more dangerous phase. Brigadier Code found out the reason for his withdrawal upon returning to Pak Chon. The divisional commander greeted him with the words, The Chinese are in. The Third World War has started. It wasn't quite as dramatic as all that, but it did signal that the Communist forces had just increased massively and would, without doubt, switch from defence to attack. The men of the Commonwealth Brigade had been expecting to be relieved to rest up and recuperate, but that was not to be. On the right flank of the UN forces, the South Koreans were advancing from Pyongyang when they encountered heavy resistance. The US 1st Cavalry Division was sent to assist. The 5th and 8th Regiments of the Division dug in at Usan. At 5pm on the 1st of November, a Chinese force attacked the Americans and was held. But that was just a probing attack. As darkness fell, the full force of the Chinese army was unleashed against the Americans and managed to cut off their supply route. Cavalry had no choice but to pull back. Again and again the Americans were ambushed as they fell back and with no chance to regroup, they were unable to even slow down the Chinese attack. It was the worst day in the history of the 1st Cavalry. Of the 1,481 men in the 8th Regiment, around 1,000 were lost. They'd also lost 138 trucks, 12 105mm howitzers, 12 75mm recoilers rifles and 11 tanks. The Argyles and the Middlesex were sent to Taichon to cover the retreat and the British Commonwealth Brigade had their first encounter with the Chinese. Seven Chinese troops marched down the road towards them and willingly surrendered without a fight. Makes you wonder just how keen was the average Chinese soldier when some were surrendering right at the outset of hostilities when everything was going their way. Anyway, after two days at Taishon, the Argyles and Middlesex were ordered back to join the Australians at Pak Chon. 
With the Chinese hot on their heels, having arrived at Taichung only half an hour after it was deserted, the two regiments passed through D Company of 3 RER, guarding the important crossroads at Kasan. Everyone was now tucked in nice and comfy at Pak Chon, waiting for the Chinese to arrive. The US 24th Infantry Division was to the right of the Commonwealth Brigade, extending the perimeter to cover the Anji Crossing over the Chongchon River. The South Koreans were to the left of the Commonwealth Brigade. On the night of 4th of November, the Chinese struck, focusing their attack on the 24th Infantry Division and pushed the Americans back a mile. While holding the Americans in place, the bulk of the Chinese force then swung to the west to get in behind the Commonwealth Brigade and cut the Pakchon Sinanju Road over the Chongchon River. This would be a bad thing. Without that crossing, any withdrawal would have to be carried out across various fords and narrow bridges. That would also be the case for resupplies of ammunition and other supplies. The Middlesex had a brief encounter with the Chinese on the 4th, but it was on the 5th that things got going in the Commonwealth Brigade sector. A battery from the 161st US Field Artillery took the first hit of the day, four miles south of Pakchon. The Argyles sent their A Company to help the gunners and met stiff opposition. B and C Companies went in to reinforce A Company via a narrow river crossing which was under fire. The troops had to cross in single file, well spaced and no doubt with a heavy helping of nerves. The crossing took several hours and cost a number of wounded. The Middlesex Regiment was able to provide machine gun support once the companies were across and B and C Companies began to clear the road. A Company pushed forward far enough to now be able to assist the gunners who were now firing over open sights at the Chinese. When the Argyles finally arrived, the Americans were out of ammunition, but the pile of Chinese dead only 30 yards from their muzzles was evidence that the Americans had fought it out well. Now obviously, when the Argyles left their position to go help the Americans, that left their old position untended. Three RAR had been in position in the town of Pakchon, and they now moved to cross the Tianyong River to take possession of the Argyles' old position. Unfortunately, the Communists had beaten them to it and so a full battalion attack was required, with A and B companies leading the way. A Company was commanded by Captain Bill Chitz, while B Company was led by Captain Darcy Laughlin after Major Derwell had broken his leg in a vehicle accident two days before. With support from the Australian 77th Squadron Mustangs, the companies pushed forward towards a roadblock on top of a hill 150 feet high. From here, they would have a clear field of fire over 500 yards of open paddy fields. This was the first occasion when the Australian squadron provided direct fire support to Australian troops. When code called for air support for the attack, Flight Lieutenant Ian Olerenshaw, Flying Officer William Horseman, and Pilot Thomas Stoney took to the air. Flight Lieutenant George Odgers described the action in his book, Across the Parallel. They used up all their machine gun and rocket ammunition and saw the enemy troops scattering all over the place. It was a good feeling to know you were supporting your own boys. Horseman and Stoney stooged around for a while, and then the controllers sent them rocketing and machine gunning the trenches of the same hill. They saw dozens of enemy troops dart out of their positions and run down the valley. End quote. It took an hour to take the objective, with heavy casualties suffered, but they were in position and that's all that mattered. D Company, under the command of Major Walter Brown, was sent forward to reinforce A and B Company, and C Company was held in reserve. Just after darkness fell on the 5th of November, the Chinese and North Koreans attacked C Company in force with mortars and machine guns. Fire was also directed at the support company and battalion headquarters 400 metres to the south of the forward positions. This was a bit too close for comfort for Walsh, and he decided to pull headquarters back a further 900 yards. The Chinese came at C Company across the paddy fields while also hitting A and B companies up in the hills. This assault on three of his companies caused Walsh to fear losing his entire force. Shortly after 8pm, he ordered a general withdrawal, without informing Brigadier Code. 
He still had one company heavily engaged with the enemy. It was dark and no organised plan was provided. Not a shining example of battalion level leadership, it must be said. A Company was now under command of Lieutenant Lawrence Clark, as Chitz had been wounded earlier in the afternoon. Receiving the order to withdraw from a lieutenant colonel, the relatively inexperienced lieutenant attempted to do as ordered immediately. He did manage to extract his company, which was not an insignificant achievement, but it did mean some of his men were killed and wounded in the attempt. B and D companies were a bit more fortunate in that their commanders were wily old World War II veterans, and although they carried out Walsh's order, they waited until a more opportune time to do so. This meant they suffered less than A Company, although B Company was still required to fight their way through. I'm not sure what Brigadier Code said when he found out about the withdrawal, and I probably wouldn't be able to publish it without an R rating if I did know. Needless to say, he wasn't happy. The whole left flank of the brigade was now exposed to a flanking attack, which, as future operations would prove, was the preferred tactic of the Chinese. He ordered Walsh to reoccupy his abandoned positions, but in the dark, with enemy troops possibly running all over the place, this proved to be largely impossible. Only D Company was able to regain its old position. The former A and B Company positions now housed a large number of Chinese troops. The battalion, less D Company, concentrated at a railway crossing while Code ordered the positions to be shelled, while the Middlesex were sent to hold the southwestern side of the pass to hold an expected Chinese attack on that flank. But then, sometime after midnight, the fighting eased and the Chinese were seen to be withdrawing. By 2am, three RAR were back on their old positions. The day's fighting had cost three RAR 12 killed and 64 wounded. Shortly after, Lieutenant Colonel Walsh was relieved of command of the battalion. We can't be too hard on him. He had no previous combat experience when he took command only six days earlier. His first combat engagement happened to be against a heavy Chinese force and he just didn't have enough experience to properly assess the situation when the Chinese counterattacked. Whether he panicked, misinterpreted orders, or simply made a poor decision, the unnecessary order to withdraw resulted in a massive threat to the whole position and cost A Company in particular unnecessary casualties. He had to go. Colonel Green had formerly been an officer in the 2nd 2nd Infantry Battalion in World War II, and so he'd had the experience which Walsh had lacked. That's why he had handled the battalion so well during the opening stages of the war. But he was now dead. Fortunately, in what would turn out to be an inspired choice, another 2nd 2nd Infantry Battalion officer was to replace Walsh. In the middle of a desperate fight for Pak Chon, Lieutenant Colonel Bruce Ferguson took command and the men couldn't have been happier. There's a good photo of Lieutenant Colonel Ferguson, which I'll put up on the website. He's leaning casually on the back of a jeep, cigarette in one hand, the other hand in his pocket, just looking around. He appears to be a man totally unfazed by anything and confident. That's all you want in a leader, really. He would prove it wasn't merely your show in upcoming fighting. Despite the near disaster of the previous night, three RAR still held the high ground on and the road. Not one to waste time settling in, Ferguson immediately set about setting things in order. He ordered deep weapons pits to be dug and sent teams out to burn rice stacks in the paddy fields to deny the enemy any cover while they crossed. He then sent out patrols to clear any enemy who may still be lingering in the area. These patrols killed seven communist soldiers. With things now much more to his satisfaction, Ferguson ordered C Company to advance towards a high hill overlooking the road about 2,500 yards northeast of where D Company was dug in. They took the hill unopposed and saw enemy troops withdrawing northwards. For the next few days, the Commonwealth Brigade patrolled extensively well north of their position, encountering many stragglers which they easily killed or captured. By now, it was obvious to all and sundry that the Scots, Brits and Australians had halted the Chinese attempt at breaking through and had kept open the vital supply route. 
But what of the Chinese? With the benefit of hindsight, knowing how hard the Chinese would fight in future battles, it seems like they were defeated fairly easily. Yes, it was a tough fight with high casualties on both sides, but the Chinese seemed to pack it in after only a couple of days. I can't help but think back to those seven Chinese soldiers who happily surrendered themselves only a day or so after China entered the fray. Was the heart of the average Chinese soldier just not in it? Or maybe the Chinese commanders thought they would be able to just roll over the UN forces without much resistance. If so, they'd been proven wrong. And maybe now they were pulling back to have a bit of a rethink about how they were going to go about this thing. From the UN perspective, they'd met and held a major Chinese offensive and their enemy were withdrawing. Too good an opportunity to pass up. And so, once again, the direction of the Korean War changed. It was time to move north again. But for the Australians, Argyles and Middlesex, it was time for a spell. They'd been the vanguard for the UN advance north of the 38th parallel, fought through the apple orchard, forced the crossing and established the Chongchon bridgehead and played the lead role in fighting the Chinese offensive to a standstill. The Australians had 12 killed and nearly 70 wounded. But in the process, they'd gained a steady, capable commanding officer and they'd learned something of how to fight the Chinese. It was time to pull back to Kapyong for some rest and recuperation. Or so they thought. But we'll cover that epic fight in an upcoming episode. Hope you enjoyed that episode. If so, feel free to leave a comment on the website at australianmilitaryhistorypodcast.com or on Instagram under AMH Podcast or on Facebook. Also, apparently leaving a review on iTunes helps more people to find the podcast, so it would be very much appreciated if you can head over to iTunes and leave a review and a comment so that more people can learn about the amazing history of Australia at Arms. And remember, if there's any aspect of our military history which you would like to hear about, drop me a line at amhp.media at gmail.com. Thank you for listening to the Australian Military History Podcast. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.